Uh, Would you please turn with me to your study outline there in your program, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, and also our friends at the Baptist Community Church in Arco, Idaho, as well as our friends at Purpose Church, Kalispell, Montana. Uh, Where's the woo? You know, Mary usually is there. There she is. Okay, there you guys are. I know. Whenever I know that there are Montanans in the, uh, I'm just glad you don't shoot guns in the air or something like that. Not cool in Pomona, you guys. Weapons not cool here, you know, what you do in Montana stays in Montana. But we are so honored to have uh, Pastor Mary Todd and uh, her husband Rick and their uh, new associate pastor candidate, Sarge Warwick, and his wife Cindy, and they are just killing it up at Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. I always say, I don't want anybody to move. I get so tired of people moving from California to other states. I have a list of states that I hate. Um, Tennessee, Idaho, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Montana. But if you got to move somewhere, if you got that itch to go someplace different than Southern California, Kalispell, Montana is on the acceptable list, okay? I want you to know. So will the four of you stand up and let's let them know that we just love this leadership team and how God is using them and just in such and such uh, a, a powerful way. Uh, Now, today I want to preach a transitional sermon from our first two series in 2020 uh, to our current series. Uh, Our January series was uh, What's Next, uh, talking about next uh, habits, next steps uh, to growing towards Jesus and following after Him. Our February series was called Financial Freedom, and now our March series from the book of Colossians is going to be called First. Now, There's this overarching theme, so I want to spend the first half of my message kind of tying all these three series together, and then we'll send the second half launching us into our new series that we'll be doing during the month of March. There's this overarching theme for these first three series of the decade, of the new decade, and it is this, how to live an epic life. You are not called to live an ordinary life. God has called you to live an epic life. And you say, oh, Glenn, you're just making me feel bad because I know how ordinary my life is. I mean, I feel that all the time, just how ordinary my life is. No, no, no. This is not some challenge to, oh, yeah, you just need to do more and step out more to live that epic life. What I want to convince you of is that your life as you're currently living it is an epic life. And you need to take it more seriously. I have this thing that when we stand before Jesus someday, we're going to wish we had taken ourselves more seriously. You say, Glenn, that sounds arrogant. That doesn't sound Christian. Okay, here's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being prideful or arrogant. I'm talking about when we get to heaven, we're, we're going to realize that God's assignment to us was epic. It was amazing. And we're going to be like, oh, no, I wish, I wish I'd taken it more seriously. You ever find that way when you're underdressed and you walk into an occasion and then you're underdressed, like, oh, I wish I'd taken this uh, more seriously. I believe that's going to be our first reaction. Now, we're going to enjoy heaven, and it's not going to damper our joy there in any way. But I think we're going to get there and say, oh, man, I wish I'd taken it more seriously. I mean, we're going we're to be teachers of third grade Sunday school class with little kids in our, in our class. And we're going to just kind of hurriedly get through our lesson preparation. And and we're going to get to heaven and find out that that assignment was as important as Billy Graham speaking to a stadium full of 100,000 people. We're we're going to find out that it was just as epic as that, that. That serving the homeless of Pomona... And maybe you serve at one of our homeless ministries or our clothing ministries or, or our after-school tutoring. And you're going to get to heaven and find out that God considered that just as epic 
as the orphanage that Mother Teresa ran in, 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 Ken, in Calcutta, in India. And we're going to say, oh, I wish I'd taken myself more seriously. I wish I'd realized what an epic life God had, what an epic purpose and assignment and plan that God had given to me. Now, epic, uh, and boy, I've got our uh, Azusa Pacific professor of literature. Nothing like having a C.S. Lewis scholar in the house. I'm always embarrassed when I do these things in front of you guys that are experts in so many of your fields. But here's an epic. An epic is a long narrative poem which is usually related to heroic deeds of a person of unusual courage and unparalleled bravery. God has written an epic poem for you to fulfill. Your poem will be read in heaven. It is epic. Your life story that God has written for you is an epic poem which is related to you heroically. And some of you, I know the hard stuff you face every day. It is heroic. I know you parents that are raising up little kids and, and you're here and you're going to fall asleep in about five minutes because it's the only sleep you've had all week. It is heroic. I know some of the ways that you are serving the poor and that you are uh, financially sacrificing to reach people for Christ in India, as we talked about last Sunday. It, you are living a heroic life. It is taking courage to live the life. For you to bounce back from some of the times you've been knocked down has taken unusual Courage and to you to, to charge forward every day takes unparalleled uh, bravery. Now, men, please don't walk out on me if I criticize General Maximus. I personally have never allowed criticism of General Maximus in my presence. So, men, please don't be offended. But here's the one thing I find right, wrong, and one thing I find right about General Maximus. What's wrong is his vision is too small. His vision is basically, men, lay down your lives to expand the borders of the Roman Empire, which ended up collapsing in 476 AD, only 296 years after Maximus gave this challenge. He's, he's challenging them to something that didn't even last three centuries after he gave the challenge. His, his vision was too small. And yet Jesus, when he challenges us, if you find yourself with the sun on your face, do not be troubled. You are in heaven and you're already dead. I, you know, I always think that's not that funny, but when the cool guy says it, everybody laughs, you know, in that, that clip. What we do in this life, here's what I do agree with it. What we do in this life echoes into eternity. He was calling his men to live an epic life. What we do in this life echoes into eternity, not just mere expansion of the Roman Empire that would be gone and 296 years later. No, he's, he's calling his men to live an epic life, and Jesus calls us to one, be one that truly does echo into eternity. Now, here are some things that combine the series we've been in with the new series uh, that I want to talk about living an epic life. There are many things I could say. Let me just mention five. Number one, don't give in to what I call false social identity. I am like her or him, therefore I am important. You say, Glenn, what are you talking about social identity? Okay, Th this is something I think is rampant in our culture and society right now. Social identity theory is the idea that I gain my importance by identifying with a particular group. I gain my importance by rooting for a certain team. Uh, living my life vicariously through my hero. I don't think my own life is epic, and so I pick somebody who I think 
from a distance is living an epic life, and I live my life vicariously through that person because I believe they are living an epic life. Identifying with someone who is living an epic life because I don't think that I am able to live an epic, li- epic life. And so I live my life vicariously through that person I perceive as living an epic life. Let me give you an example of this. I can't play basketball like LeBron James. So I live my life vicariously through LeBron. Uh, I'm not as royal as Meghan and Harry. As a matter of fact, come to think of it, now I am as, as royal as, as Meghan and Harry. Uh, but uh, let, let's change it a little bit. I'm not, I'm not as cool as Meghan and Harry. Uh, I'm not as cool as Chris Pratt or Taylor Swift. So I live my life vicariously through them. Uh, maybe I do it through politicians uh, like, like Bernie and like Donald. Uh, you know, they're going to save us. Their ideas are going to save us. And so I live my life vicariously through them. Maybe I do it through influencers on social media. Now, please don't get me wrong. Um, this is, a lot of this is innocent fun. You guys know I, I live for my Green Bay Packers, you know. So I, I'm, I'm a hypocrite right here, you know. And so don't get me wrong. A lot of this is innocent fun. It may even be inspirational. So, the, so many of these people inspire me. But just don't give in to the cultural temptation to live someone else's life. You are epic. You don't have to pick somebody you think is epic and live your life vicariously through them. You, your life is epic. Now, the opposite of this is is this point. Don't waste your time on the criticism seesaw. I am not like him or her. Therefore, I I am important. Many times, it's like we're on a seesaw. And if we put another person down, that will raise us up. And so we spend our lives criticizing other people to to put them down on the seesaw so that we go up and that makes us feel uh, more important. Um, Can I just take a sidebar here? One of my pet peeves is how Christians will find every little reason to criticize other Christians or certain Christian leaders. Like uh, through the years, I've seen them do this to Billy Graham and they perceive that he was living an epic life. And so they would find little nitpicking to criticize him. Don't get me wrong. He was not a perfect man, made plenty of mistakes. But they find little nitpicking ways because somehow by putting him down, somebody who was living an epic life, it made them feel more epic. Um, the, the kind of the Billy Graham of the 1800s is a man named D.L. Moody. And after one of his evangelistic meetings, a lady came up to him and was just ripping him on little things about how he shared the gospel and how uh, she just thought that was wrong and this was wrong, that was wrong. So he listened patiently to her, trying to understand her position. And then finally said, okay, well, I understand how you don't like this or that about my way of reaching people for Jesus. What's your strategy for reaching people for Jesus? And she said, well, I have none. And so D.O. Moody said, I like my imperfect way of reaching people for people of Jesus better than your non-existent way of reaching people for Jesus. Um, and so sometimes we criticize others in order to, sometimes I think it's a smokescreen. Christians love to criticize other Christians. You know why? Because it makes us feel busy even though we're not really doing anything. It's like, have you ever had some important job to do at home and all of a sudden, but, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll put off cleaning a closet for two decades, all right? I have, and so yeah, yeah, you just ask Kimberly. And, and all of a sudden, I've got some uh, big, you know, paper. If you have to, you're, you're in school, you've got some big paper to do, or you've got some big project you've got to do. And all of a sudden, cleaning that closet becomes the most important thing in life. 
and, and because you're using it to avoid the harder thing, all right? And so sometimes we do this in order to avoid spending time fulfilling God's epic purpose for our life. We pick sides with somebody, against somebody, in order to make us feel more important. Now, don't, don't feel bad about this. Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. Uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, to the Christ followers in Corinth. He said, you are still worldly. And, you know, that is you're caving into the culture around you. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? I mean, back then the culture around them was saying, I'm for Zeus, and I'm for Apollo, and I'm for Diana. And, you know, and they, would have, they would pick their sides. And the Christians were doing the same thing. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are, you are God's building. Uh, the next one is realize that you are fulfilling an epic purpose personally designed for you by God. Every person is fulfilling an epic purpose personally designed to you by God. Um, God came to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah talks about this in chapter 1, verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Well, you say, well, Glenn, that's, that's Jeremiah. Okay, maybe we're not appointed as a prophet to the nations. But I believe you don't live where you live by accident. You don't work where you work. You don't go to school where you go to school by accident. God has appointed you as a prophet to your family. You're in that family by God's design. You were set apart, formed in the wound, and set apart to be a prophet, uh, to be God's representative where you work, where you go to school, where you recreate, in your family, in your neighborhood. You don't live or work or, or play anywhere by accident. God formed you in the womb. He knew you before you were born. He set you apart and said, this is my epic assignment to this particular person. Uh, now, the key is, are we going to respond to that or not? Are we going to grab hold of that? Or are we just going to give into the culture and live an ordinary life and, and just kind of go through the motion and catch a few good movies and catch a few good meals and nothing wrong with any of those things, but are going to see the, the sum purpose of our life is just to do that and to raise our kids to do the same? Or are we going to say, like Isaiah said in 6 verse 8, it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? He says, who shall I send to that school where you teach? Who shall I send to that hospital where you're a nurse? Who, who, who shall I send to that address with those neighbors? Who shall I send as a student in that classroom? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Now what we've been talking about the last couple of months is build habits that help you fulfill your epic purpose. You see, so many times we think, okay, my life is going to be epic 
if I get this one moment in time, this one moment in time, uh, like Whitney Houston sang about, give me one moment in time when I'm more than I thought I could be, this one moment, and if I respond properly, then my life will be epic. And there may be some of those moments in your life, but usually an epic life comes from certain little decisions, little habits made over a lifetime that cumulatively, when you come to the end of your life, it becomes epic in its eternal impact. It echoes into eternity. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who is, I mean, he, he basically wrote the Bible. He wrote the message, okay? And he showed up, didn't he, at one of your Montana services. I, Mary, I've had that nightmare. I, I've literally had a nightmare where I'm in my pajamas or less, standing here in front of everybody, and I look out in the audience, and Billy Graham is seated on the back row. You know, well, you literally, you looked out one night, and there's Eugene Peterson at, at Montana at the hangar when it was at the hangar. That, that, is, that is the stuff of my nightmares, to have the guy that wrote the Bible in the audience. How what a drag that is. He wrote the message paraphrase, not the Bible. God wrote the Bible. I want to make that real clear. Save your emails. God wrote the Bible. Okay, here we go. So, so Eugene Peterson... He wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I love that. I, I, I've added a word to it. I like the word steady. So what I call it is a long, steady obedience in the same direction will make your life epic. That's what our church has been for 150 years. Now, there have been flashy points and moments and decisions in the 150-year history of our church, but mainly it's been about little acts of obedience over 150 years. That's what God calls us to as a church and what he calls you to do over the next decade, long, steady obedience in the same direction. Now, in the last seven weeks, I have challenged us to seven habits, seven habits uh, really, I, I merge a couple of them, so it look, it'll look like eight, but kind of seven habits we've challenged us about uh, in the last seven weeks. To spend 15 minutes a day each day in prayer. To spend 15 minutes each day uh, reading the Bible. I challenge you about big, small, serve. Not so much about big, uh, which is what you're doing right now. So anybody I would challenge that to, here you are, you're doing it. Part of the worship service, the worship experience. There's something that happens face-to-face in community with other Christians in worship that doesn't happen anywhere else. So everybody should have a big. Everybody should have a small. I did challenge you about connecting with a life group. Everybody should find a place to serve. Everybody should have a big, small serve. I challenged you a month ago with oikos, the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15, and your sphere of influence, your assignment from God. Your epic assignment from God is to go to heaven and to do everything you can to take your oikos with you. That's your assignment. And you know, I need to change that because sometimes I'll say, and to take them with you to heaven. You know, that's, that's, that's in their court. That's not in yours. Let me change that and to say, your one assignment from God is to go to heaven and then to give the people around you in your oikos every possible uh, opportunity to join you there as well. And then Dave Ramsey, over the last three weeks, uh, he has talked about the 80 10 10. Uh, live on 80% of your income so that you can save 10% of your income and give away 10% of your income. Now, the best thing for your life going into the new decade is to do those seven habits right away. Just the whole enchilada. Go for all seven. That is the one that will give you the greatest blessing and the greatest impact and make you the greatest blessing. But I believe that sometimes we don't get around to doing those things 
because they just seem so big. And, and if you just could take some little steps, little steps, that will lead to great things over a length of time. I told you before, I've been reading this book called Atomic Habits, uh, Tiny Changes Leading to Remarkable Results. Tiny changes can lead to remarkable results. And so even though uh, some people might disagree with me, uh, I believe as your pastor, I'd like to challenge you to some tiny changes that if you do them over a decade, are going to lead to a different place by the end of the decade. They're going to lead to remarkable results. And some would disagree with me. Some would say, no, you, you preach the whole enchilada or you don't preach the enchilada at all. I think that's exactly the way the Bible says it, that you, you, know, that you, you just go for the whole thing. I don't believe that. I believe sometimes incremental steps can help you. It's like working out at the gym. You can tell I have a lot of experience with that, that you, you raise your weights little by little, although that's, I'm a total hypocrite to say that, because Kimberly claims I haven't raised my weights in 30 years, and, and you know what, she's probably right, but I'm telling you, the older you get, the harder it is to keep lifting the same weight, so I digress. Okay, here we go. Tiny changes. Here, here's seven things I want to challenge you to between now and Easter. There's a tradition that many churches have of Lent. We don't do that a whole lot here, but let me give you, if you're from a background, um, more of a Catholic or Episcopalian or, or Lutheran background, let me give you your Lenten challenge. How's that? Number one, pray for 10 minutes each day until Easter. I'm going to give you either tiny steps that build on each other, or I'm going to give you short duration tiny steps. Uh, number two, read your Bible for 10 minutes each day until Easter. If you look there in your study guide, you'll see that our team has mapped out verses of Colossians to read each week. Just do that so you'll read verse by verse through Colossians between now and Easter Sunday. Number three, join a life group until Easter. You can go to the Connect Center and find out how to do that. Number four, talk to a serve coach or serve at Easter of the Fairplex. Just try one, one act of service uh, during Fairplex, and you'll hear challenges about that in, in, in the weeks ahead. Or talk to a serve coach, and you can meet a serve coach or get connected with one out at the Connect Center. Uh, basically, the answer to life is at the Connect Center. All the answers to life are right. They are the answers to taking that next step in following Jesus. I'm being facetious, by the way. All right. Number five, invite one person from your Oikos list to Easter at, at Fairplex. Um, at, the, at the Connect Center, uh, you will find your Oikos list. If you didn't get this a week from a, week, a month ago when I preached on this, grab one of these at the Connect Center and, and fill it out, and it'll explain what the Oikos principle is. And I just want to encourage you, just, just pray about one person from your Oikos list that you can invite to Easter at, at Fairplex. And then we get into the ones, uh, the uh, number six and seven, that are more financial. Save 1% more each year until you are at 10% per year. Now, will it help your future investments if you uh, go for it in just 10%? By the way, not this past week, it wouldn't have helped you any. But at any rate, will it help you in the future if you cut right to the chase? Yeah. But save 1% more each year until you get, at the end of the decade, to 10% per year. Uh, number seven, and Dave Ramsey actually preached against what I'm doing here right now. He said, you know, you can't, a 5% can't be a tithe. And, well, I'm going to go one better. I'm going to say 1%. But, it, but give 1% more each year. If you don't give at all, try to give 1% of your input. Not impulse giving, here or there. Not, get away from this whole, oh, you know, I, I see something that moves me and I give. Get away from impulse giving. Get, a, get, around, get into percentage giving. Give 1% 
per year if you're not giving anything right now. Or whatever you're giving, give 1% more each year until you're at 10% per year. I tell you what, give 1% more this year than you gave last year. If you go bankrupt, stop doing it. Okay, this is your pastor speaking. Stop doing it. But if, lo and behold, God did something, and I gave 1% more this year and last year, and, and the kids still ate, and, um, and, and we didn't go bankrupt, then trust him for another percent the next year. And just keep doing it until you get uh, to that full tithe that the Bible talks about. And then the one that we're going to pivot with for the remainder of our time. Put Christ first. And that brings us to our new series from the book of Colossians, simply entitled First. So with the time left, let me just introduce this book, get us launched into our new study. By the way, in your study guide, you will see something called thebibleproject.com. And I urge you to find that there in your study guide, the next one after the study outline. Find that, thebibleproject.com. It is a phenomenal assistance. It's got a little nine-minute introduction to the book of Colossians, and it does that for all the books of the Bible and all the subjects of the Bible. Just absolutely awesome. Let me do a quick version right now. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Here's a map of where Colossae was. It was in what is today the nation of Turkey. Here's Rome in Italy. Here's um, uh, Greece. Here's uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And Colossae was a city there in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Here are a couple of pictures from some of the archaeological ruins. Uh, It is no longer an active city today, but here are some of the archaeological ruins of Colossae today. Now, Colossians was written by Paul uh, during one of his uh, many imprisonments. He kept getting thrown in prison because he wouldn't stop telling everyone that Jesus was Lord and that Jesus has risen from the dead. He wouldn't shut up about the resurrection. He wouldn't shut up about Jesus being Lord, so they kept throwing him into prison. So this was written during one of his imprisonments. Paul had never met the Colossians. Uh, Colossae was a church that was planted by a friend of Paul's by the name of Epaphras. And he had planted the church, but he had come to visit Paul in prison, and he shared with Paul some of the things about the church that concerned Epaphras, and so they concerned uh, Paul as well. And here was Paul's main concern. They had been influenced by the culture around them that had warped their understanding of God. Now, Colossae was a prosperous city. It was part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had two guidelines with regard to religion. Guideline number one is you can worship any God that you want. Any God you want to worship, go to it. That's why if you've ever been to Rome, you've seen the Pantheon, uh, or maybe you've seen pictures of it. Pan is Greek for all. Theon is Greek for gods. All gods welcome in the Roman Empire. But number two, just don't say your God is the only God. (laughs) Rule number one, any God you want, fine. Rule number two, just don't say your God is the only God. Does that sound familiar today? So this led to what we call a build-a-bear theology, all right, where you assemble the deity that makes you feel good. And so they take, they were fine, they're cool with Jesus, but you take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Diana and a little bit of Apollo and a little bit of Zeus, a little bit of Mercury, and you kind of mix them all together into your own personal religion, that the God that makes you feel good. Uh, does that sound familiar as well? Now, kind of think of it as a Jesus and mentality. 
Um, they worship Jesus and one of these other Roman and Greek gods. And so for us, it is we worship Jesus and we embrace other things to supply whatever it is in our life that we think um, uh, beyond Jesus that might, that might be lacking, that Jesus can't provide for us. They never rejected Jesus. They just added to him. And so in response to this Jesus plus other things, here's the heart of the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Drop the mic. Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and a lot of other people teach that Jesus was a great man. As a matter of fact, I would even estimate that three quarters of planet Earth's population today sees Jesus as, as a great man, a great moral teacher. But they react strongly, sometimes even violently, when you say that Jesus is God. You want to know why? Because there's something inherently threatening about Jesus being divine. If Jesus is a created being, even a super strong, super wise one, then you can look at him as like a dispenser of good moral advice that you can put alongside all the other great religious leaders down through history. But if he's God, then the rules are altogether different. It means that he's the center of everything, and everything else is measured by him. Look at this. All things have been created through him and for him. You were created. You and I were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Just let that sink in for a moment. And then verse 17. He is before all things. That is, he is eternity past. He's the one that created it all. He's eternal. He's the image of the visible God. And in him, all things hold together. Uh, in the book Einstein by uh, Walter Isaacson, it says that many physicists are still confused as to how the atom holds itself together. Here's a picture of an atom uh, bringing back memories of your seventh grade science book. California children probably see this in kindergarten is what they do today, you know. In Southern Virginia, we didn't get to this until senior year in high school, but... Uh, <laughs> But at any rate, here is the atom, bring back memories. Um, the nucleus of the atom contains positively charged protons, which should repel each other like two positively charged magnets uh, repel each other. Okay? But something, and this is secular, many times atheist physicists speaking here. Although, a little bit of a side note, do you know which of the hard sciences there are most, more Christian than, than any other of the sciences like chemistry, biology, physicists. There are more Christians in, that are physicists than any other of the other hard science uh, fields. Okay, so anyway, physicists, this is many times uh, secular, atheist physicists, they say that something mysterious and invisible holds them together. And physicists don't know what to call this force so they simply refer to it as, quote, the stronger force. Man, it sends chills down my spine, doesn't it? They simply refer to it. We don't understand it. But it's just simply called the stronger force. 
Now, I'm not saying that it's the naked hand of God that holds the atom together, um, even though some physicists speculate that, and and maybe it is. Uh, But God can do it in a variety of different ways. Maybe God is built into the quarks and the gluons or electrons or something else we don't know yet, some natural force that overcomes the electromagnetic forces, and we'll, like, figure it out someday. But here's the point. The point is that some incredibly strong force holds the nucleus of every atom together even when it looks like it should fly apart. In the same way, God holds all of history. He holds your life together, keeping it from unraveling. He sustains creation, keeping all natural force from unraveling everything. Now verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Back to verse 18. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Oh, I love that. I love the New International. I love all the modern translations. But you know what? Here's where I love the old-fashioned King James Version that old guys like me were raised on. It says that Jesus has the preeminence. I love that word. I love supremacy. But I love he is is preeminent. His is the preeminence. Jesus is not someone you put on a list of priorities. He's the page on which all other priorities are written. He's in a class by himself. I didn't write a Valentine to Kimberly on Valentine's Day that said, Dear Kimberly, you're at the top of my list of women. You're at the top of my list. That would not have gone over well. She's the only one on my list of women. Uh, Here's my question for you and for me. Is Jesus important to you? Is Jesus important to me? Or is he first? Is he important or is he first? Here's my question for us as a church. Is Jesus important to us or is he first? You see, over time, churches move from mission to maintenance. Uh, They go from being reckless in mission to being comfortable in the institution. That's why Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, you've lost your first love. Uh, Christian schools, Christian mission agencies, Christian institutions, churches, we tend to lose our first love. And that's what makes what has happened in our church over the last 150 years remarkable and even, I dare say, historic. We've done research on this. There are only about 11 churches, us plus 10 other churches, in the history of America, possibly even in the history of the world, that have, have done it as long as we have, as well as we have done it. They're as large as us, and if you throw in other other factors as well, we might be utterly unique in the history of Christianity as to what God has done in this place over 150 years. And it's because so far we've been able to manage not moving from mission slipping into maintenance for too long of a time before it destroyed us, because that's what happens. Now remember... It's up to us because you're only just one generation away from that happening. The baton is in our hands. 
You're only just one generation away from slipping from mission to maintenance for too long of a time before you die. Uh, I love this chart. It's so appropriate for our 150th anniversary year. Uh, The main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is keeping Christ first. Does anybody want to say amen to that? And so the first generation says, does whatever it takes. The second generation does only what I'm asked to do. First generation assumes personal responsibility. Second generation assumes someone else will do it. First generation expects personal sacrifice. Second generation expects personal comfort. First generation sees problems and seeks solutions. Second generation sees problems and complains about them. First generation sees possibilities and dreams about what could be. Second generation sees barriers and reasons to quit. First generation hears the voice of God firsthand and owns the vision. Second generation inherits the vision secondhand and questions every decision. First generation steps out with bold, reckless trust in God. Second generation sits satisfied in the stability of the institution. First generation fears holding anything back from God. Second generation fears commitment. First generation feels privileged to be a part of the movement. Second generation feels entitled to the benefits of the institution. And here's what we're going to ask throughout our 150th anniversary. I'm going to ask the question of myself, which one are you? Which one am I? Let's read out loud together, Matthew 6, uh, verse 33. I tell you what, let's do that as the praise band uh, comes back up right now. As the praise band comes back up, let's read together, out loud together, Matthew 6, verse 33. Out loud together, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Oh, Lord. Uh, Help us as we go through Colossians to make you first. Colossians is this wonderful book that, I mean, how appropriate that as we prepare uh, for for Easter and as as we go through this season leading up to Easter, that we talk through a book, we study through a book that talks about making Jesus. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. Jesus. So help us over the next few weeks to get back to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Help us to focus for these next four weeks and then Palm Sunday and Easter on Jesus. And as we do that, help us to get that first love back once again. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. Let's stand up. Let's worship a little bit.